There is evidence from some sports that if a load is applied in a moderate and progressive manner and rapid increases in load relative to what the athlete is prepared for are avoided, high loads and physically hard training may actually offer a protective effect against injuries. And we'll, we'll contrast this to trends that I at least have seen in the tactical environment, which is that rather than recognizing that periods with low training loads put you at a heightened risk of injury as you come back into training, we, we actually end up overcompensating and say, oh, you guys haven't trained in a few weeks. We need to go extra hard to make up for all the training we've missed. And now you've set yourself up for the exact situation that the authors here identify as what puts athletes at the highest risk of injury. I'll start. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Welcome welcome to Fireside Chats with, with Moss and Moss, with Alex and Drew. Um, we're doing something a little bit different tonight. Instead of a guest, uh, instead of Alex and I attacking a particular topic on our own, we have in front of us a consensus statement on load management and how how much is too much in terms of, of training volume and training exposure. Yeah, so... If you've been following the page for a little bit, you might've seen that I did a series of Instagram posts on this particular paper a few months ago, but frankly, I think it was not content necessarily suited to the Instagram mode of communication, I guess. Um, it's, it requires a little bit of context, a little bit of conversation. You have to think you can't just click. Exactly. And what's cool about that is that now we have a podcast so we can talk about it a little bit longer form. Um, so the, the piece I'm talking about, it's titled How Much is Too Much? And how this came about is that there's plenty of emerging evidence that poor load management is a major risk factor for injury. So a few years ago, the International Olympic Committee got together a pretty big panel of like respected international expert level people involved in this, whether it's coaching or injury epidemiology or all the pieces of it. And what they tried to do is come up with kind of like the core elements that they could all agree on in terms of how training volume influences the risk for injury. And some of these are things that we talk about a lot and like aren't super shocking, but some of them are things that run a little bit contrary to what you might assume about training volume and and back to the title how much is too much so that's what we're going to dive into and it's important to note uh for those of you that are into research and reading research this is a like alex mentioned this is a consensus statement so this is not a peer-reviewed study this is not a clinical trial it's it's sort of a meta-analysis but not really um, the paper itself is available. It was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2016. So it's an easy Google to find it. Uh, there were quite a, a bit of inclusion criteria that they went with in order to figure out what, what the committee was going to include in terms of, um, you know, the different studies that led to their consensus. Uh, you know, the studies had to involve athletes of all levels. Injuries had to be documented either by a clinical diagnosis or a self-report. Uh, injuries had to be related to competition, training, competition calendar, congestion, which is something that we'll get into, uh, psychological or travel load. Uh, studies where single or multiple risk factors for injury were studied um, using a, a variety of different analyses. 
And then, uh, you know, we mentioned that this itself is a consensus statement, but the, the studies that they're looking at had to have one of the following designs, either a systematic review, randomized controlled trial, prospective cohort study, retrospective cohort study, cross-sectional studies, and or case-controlled studies. So I say all that because though it is a, a statement and though Alex and I are going to kind of pick it apart and, and talk about some different components of it, we're, we're looking at the surface of a pretty vast body of research. Um, so it's very interesting. I think there's a lot of things that providers and practitioners can take away from it. Uh, so hopefully this is one that everybody enjoys. And if, if you're a big old nerd, like you said, all those criteria mean that if you check out the sources used for the paper, there's a ton of different directions you can go. We'll mention a couple of them as we go through that were particularly interesting. But if you're the kind of person who's into reading research, this consensus statement is a really cool starting point where you can find a ton of different rabbit holes to go down. Yeah, and specifically, um, I'm flipping through the references now. There are 223 uh, rabbit holes you could go down. So if tonight's uh, discussion uh, tickles your fancy, enjoy diving down 223 rabbit holes. Pause for fact. Music, 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 music. music. I have no idea how to do it. I'm I'm still just enjoying the the segue with the music there. That was fantastic. <laughs> this kind of serves as a preamble, kind of, because this is going to be addressing one of the sources of, like, referenced by the paper, not necessarily something that was talked about in the paper directly. But I love that you called it out as we were reading this and digging into it. And you you mentioned the criteria for how injuries were measured in the studies that were included in this consensus statement, and that. The answer is not necessarily a perfect answer, right? Because as as they observed, you can have an injury without missing play time or training time. You can have pain without having an injury. There, like you could have an injury later that doesn't get documented the same way as the other ones do. There's a lot of things that go into how we measure injury, and I've I've seen this come up in a ton of human performance programs because a lot of what people want to see in terms of return on investment in human performance is either reduced injuries or reduced time loss due to injuries. And that brings up a huge conversation of if we're going to start measuring things, how are we measuring it? And what does that mean for the conclusions we're going to come to? Correct. And I think the monitoring, we've talked about this with a couple of guests, but like the monitoring of things creates a lot of creates a lot of biases and a lot of preconceptions around, like you mentioned, what you can measure is measuring. If you measure, is it then manageable? Is it worth measuring? Is it something you need to manage? Again, you could go off in a lot of directions with that. But I think for me, the starting point for this paper was right there in the abstract when it comes to like defining load, like what is load? We talked about this before we hit record. Like, I think most folks think of load as like an external thing, and that's not necessarily wrong. Uh, but one thing that these guys and gals, I think, did really well, which we'll dive into a little bit, is they included subjective metrics of load as well. And they included internal measures of load, psychological measures of load, and the ways in which that can either 
predicate or contribute to injury. Um, I think, I mean, this was again in 2016, so a couple of years ago, but that concept of it's not just mechanistic is, I think at least there's a lot of foresight to that when it comes to what we think about when it comes to managing the human component of, of athletes. I'll, I'll underline what you said. So first of all, remember that like the, the committee that came together for this is talking like their background tends to be, even though some of the studies are with wide ranging populations, the background of a lot of the people who contributed to this tends to be looking at elite athletes. And even then they're acknowledging the, the subjective categories and the internal stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to read two quick quotes here from the consensus statement itself that I think are really important and sometimes overlooked. Um, not on this podcast because Drew talks about them all the time, but <laughs> broadly. So the first one is a key concept to appreciate for those responsible for managing load is that maladaptations are triggered not only by poor management of training and competition loads, but also by interaction with psychological non-sport stressors, such as negative life event stress and daily hassles. And you combine that one with the next quote here, which is that a recent systematic review on internal load monitoring concluded that subjective measures were more sensitive and consistent than objective measures in determining acute and chronic changes in athlete well-being in response to load. And you've heard me say it before on the podcast, you probably heard Drew say it before on the podcast, it's easy, particularly in large bureaucracies like the military, to assume that objective measures are more valid and We've, we've talked recently about how you can't treat humans just like vehicles and weapons with maintenance and all that kind of stuff. And this is a classic case of that, right? Trucks don't have feelings that you have to account for and people do. And it turns out that their perception of stress is just as, if not more important than the actual stress itself. And that is what makes this whole human performance thing challenging and why communication skills and relationship management stuff is so crucial when you're talking about these programs. So we talked about um, their definition of load and I will read again directly. We'll probably do this a number of times throughout this episode is either quoting directly or taking chunks of quotes directly. Um, so the committee themselves defined load as the sport and non-sport burden as a stimulus that is applied to a human biological system. So the sport and non-sport burden is a single or multiple physiological, psychological, or mechanical stressor. So think about, um, you know, weight on the bar or your perceptions heading into the session. If you want to get into like the psychological component of it, uh, a stimulus applied to the human biological system, which for them includes subcellular elements, single cell tissue, one or multiple organ systems, or the individual as a whole, uh, they mentioned that it can be applied over varying time periods. And again, a lot of this is like obvious, but we're, we're setting their definition so that we can then use that to unpack some of the rest of the statements that they make. Um, but time periods, seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, etc. And then with varying magnitude, so duration, frequency, and intensity. I think, I mean, that's to me, that's a pretty good definition of load. The one note that I made as I was reading through this is it was interesting that they said it was a stimulus applied strictly to the biological system. So they do, on the one hand, a great job of, of discussing the monitoring of, of psychological and psychosocial aspects of load management, but in their definition of load, it's only applied to the, the biological 
system. And I see, I mean, I get why they did that. Um, but it's interesting because if you read some of the work around like contemporary stress physiology, there's an acknowledgement of, of it being more than just biology. And that's like a rabbit hole. I don't necessarily want to dive down. Um, but we talked about some of the visuals that they have in this paper, specifically, you know, the biological adaptation that they show. And if you look this paper up and, and kind of Google it, you'll recognize the general adaptation syndrome, which, you know, I'm such a huge fan of uh, when it comes to, you know, Hans Selye's work and the fact that we're still clinging on to it. Um, and these guys, you know, no discredit to them, but they've used that as kind of a reference point for this. And, and essentially, it's this idea that you impose a load, there's reduced capacity, i.e. fatigue. And then over time, you return to or in some cases, super compensate beyond your your base level. And that's all well and good. But what we have started to acknowledge is the fact that that kind of um, fitness adaptation is happening at the same time as that fatigue adaptation. And so within that, there's a lot of room for conversation about things that we talk about all the time, like Alex mentioned, the the psychosocial component of of load application, the psycho like the psychological component. So it's not that I I don't want to say I disagree with them because they are way more qualified than I am. It was just interesting to me that when we define load and look at it as a purely biological system that we're applying load to, I think it creates an interesting conversation around what that really means. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's that was where I was at as I was reading through kind of the intro and preamble to their consensus statements. It is interesting. This isn't necessarily something I picked up on during my read of it, but it's something I'm noticing as I like look at it now as you say that stuff. But they do kind of swing back and forth with like talking about it purely biologically. And you'll see a lot of like very gassy looking charts in here. And it's like in the languages, biological maladaptation, like the, the terminology they use is very mechanistic and biological in like a huge portion of it, despite also in other places having some really quality discussion of how it's not purely biological and there is a huge subjective element to this stuff. And yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. It seems like they're like struggling to make two models mesh. Case in point, and I'm looking at it right now, they they propose this well-being continuum, which I think is fine. And I think a lot of folks in this space have seen these types of things before, where on the one hand, you have, they use homeostasis. And then on the other hand, they use death, which is pretty dramatic. I will give them credit because they do admit that most athletes don't reach death. They reach injury or illness. So fair play. But even within that, the kind of landmarks across that spectrum are mostly biological so subclinical tissue damage non-functional overreaching clinical symptoms overtraining like i understand that within those you could probably tease out some some biopsychosocial pieces but i would make the argument that if we're going to propose a well-being continuum and say that you can be you know on one side or the other there should probably be some landmarks on there that would include things like psychological burnout you know low confidence low motivation and on the other side high motivation you know buy-in etc 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 um, so again, not, none of this is to say that these guys are wrong, obviously, but I would just, I would make the case that there's a problem. There's probably a more robust definition that we could tease out from that. Um, but I'll, I'll move on from that 
piece of it because they've defined low unless there's more that you want to add. I think you got it right on because I was going to talk about the the continuum as well because it's I mean like you said it's a, a it oversimplifies when they have just talked about the importance of not ignoring those variables. Yeah, I would agree with that. So having then defined load, the next kind of pit stop we make here is is monitoring of load and injury and specifically monitoring external and internal loads. And and this is where I think they do a really good job of laying out some examples of of measurements. And as somebody in this space who likes to measure things, I think it's useful to kind of touch on a couple of them. So I won't read all these. There's a lot, but on the external load side of things, some examples. And again, some of these will be very obvious. Competition time or training time. So seconds, minutes, hours, days, the type of training. You know, a lot of folks are getting into the time motion analysis. So that would be like GPS type stuff. Power output, speed, acceleration, um, you know, jump tests, neuromuscular function type stuff. Movement repetition. So for a lot of strength coaches, you know, that's reps and sets. But then when you tease that out into sort of team sports, you're looking at, you know, baseball, number of pitches, uh, number of throws, serves, jumps, et cetera. Distance traveled, acute chronic load ratio, which we'll talk about. So those for these guys are all external load metrics. But I think the more interesting one or the more interesting category is the internal load. Uh, so they, you know, perception of effort. We've talked a lot about that on this podcast, RPE session rating of perceived exertion, which is an interesting one. And that's essentially RPE multiplied by number of minutes, you know, for the session. And there's some limitations to that, which, which they discuss psychological tests. So I won't dive into all of these because that is definitely not my area of of expertise, but palms, uh, ACSI 28, TQR, SAS, STAI. These are all acronyms, obviously, that pertain to specific psychological inventories. It's not just the military guys. Lots of professions have a bunch of jargon. A lot of professionals use acronyms. Measuring sleep, you, you know, you could get into the weeds with biochemical, hormonal, immunological assessments, heart rate, heart rate to RPE ratios, which is something that I hadn't even seen before. Here's a, a here's one that everyone loves: heart rate variability, uh, blood lactate, blood lactate, blood bleh, blood lactate two RPE. There's a tongue twister for you. So, again, credit to these guys because if you had read a consensus statement like this, I would argue probably twenty years ago, maybe thirty years ago, there would probably be very little, if any, discussion around internal load monitoring because everything was external. They might, you know, tip their cap towards the psychology of the athlete, but it was not necessarily something that we thought to capture slash knew how to capture. So yeah, good work there. And despite having that like massive range of potential measurement tools, they still do a good job of acknowledging the limitations of it. And the fact that it can't really stand on its own, they make it clear that like no single marker has been validated to identify when an athlete has entered a maladaptive state. They talk about the utility of subjective load measures. They talk about load is not an isolated variable. You can't really look at it on its own. It has to be monitored using a comprehensive approach that accounts for other things, intrinsic and extrinsic factors, the individual's injury history, psychological stuff that you're not necessarily capturing. 
I knew I was going to mention his name at least once in this discussion, and I'll give a nod to John Kiley here because he he does a great job talking about this piece of it. And I just listed off a ton of external and internal load uh, monitoring techniques. Um, and and one of the statements that this group makes as part of this consensus statement is that, and I'll, I'll quote them directly, whereas measuring external load is important in understanding the work completed and capabilities and capacities of the athlete, Measuring internal load is critical in determining the appropriate stimulus for optimal biological adaptation. I think that, to me, when it comes to like highlighting pieces of this and taking out nuggets, this is like one of the biggest ones because a lot of folks in this space stop at the external load monitoring piece. So by their consensus, what that is effectively saying is if if we only measure the external load, if we only look at reps and sets and weight and time and distance and we take no accounting of the internal load subjective or objective all we're really doing is looking at the completed capabilities and capacities of the athlete there's no real way for us to determine the appropriate stimulus and then by extension how to progress that stimulus if we're not accounting for the squishier stuff uh, which is something that we have tried to intentionally tease out with the conversations that we've had and the guests that we've brought on. So hopefully longtime listeners of the podcast will be aware of the fact that we think that that's important. I thought it was awesome to see that these guys did too. And I think uh, something to keep in mind as we go through this conversation. So this one, this episode will be airing a week after we do the cognitive one. And a key element of the cognitive episode is how do you talk to leaders about this stuff? Because I think the the problem is even bigger when we talk about internal versus external objective versus subjective, even if a coach reads some of this stuff and starts to understand that like subjective and internal are probably more valid than objective and external in a lot of cases, it's still a long road from there to convincing leaders who have not been exposed to this stuff. Don't read any of this stuff probably come from a pretty old school background how do you talk to them about this kind of stuff? And that's where I think products like this paper coming from a body like these folks add so much to like the the validity or like the perceived validity when you have a conversation about why are we measuring it this way? I remember being in the room, you got a human performance team and you got some senior leaders in the room um, and a coach talks about how they're he's he's essentially explaining rpe and why they take self-reported rpe and self-reported measures of recovery from the tactical professionals they're working with to determine adjustments to their program and one of the leaders in the room is like yeah well like we could make this a lot better if we could just like strap some wearables on this guy so we would have some objective data that we could make all our decisions based off of and that on its surface sounds great right like surely objective coming from a computer will be more valid and make our program way, way, way better. But when we actually look at the data and they lay it out pretty clearly here, that is just not the case. It it can make some things easier. I'm not saying it's not useful, but it is not inherently better just because it's nice numbers on a nice graph rather than somebody's interpretation of how they're feeling. I think we did a good job on the external and internal load monitoring section of that. The next the next piece of it is how you monitor symptoms and injuries. And I will be the first to admit that, again, this is not an area of expertise, I would say, for either of us. 
But reading this for me highlighted some some areas of research that I think would be interesting to explore in future episodes with folks that are conducting research around one, like what is an injury, but then two, how do we monitor it? What does it look like? Because they, you know, they say here that injuries are generally, at least traditionally and still today, even injuries are reported as an injury when they meet the operational injury definition. I just used the word injury three times in one sentence, which I think was pretty impressive. So when the symptom happened, when performance was reduced, when they, they had to take time out from sport or whatever. And what was interesting to me was that the kind of more contemporary opinion on injury and, and some of the newer recommendations call for more valid and sensitive scoring instruments, use of prevalence and not incidence to report injury risk. And the classification of the severity of the injury according to functional level as opposed to just how, you know, are they playing or are they not playing? Which for me was, I think, that hit home because on the tactical side of things, most of the, most, if not all the conversation around injury hinges on, you know, one, when did they say they got hurt, even though they may have been dealing with this for a long time. And then two, the severity of that injury is predicated on this idea of how long they're going to be gone as opposed to maybe there's some semblance of function along that timeline that allows them to do parts of their job, but not all of their job. And what I would reference there is this conversation that we have all the time about the stoplight system of categorizing athletes, red, yellow, and green. Um, and, and red is very clear cut. I would argue that falls into this kind of traditional injury definition of, Hey, they're hurt. They can't do anything. They're red. A lot of leaders understand that. And then, you know, they obviously understand the green side of things. They're good to go. They can deploy, they can go out and do stuff. They can do their PT test, but the yellow color is always the conversation color because those are the ones that can do some stuff but not all stuff and at least from what i've seen and you may agree or disagree like that's a for one reason or another that's a really weird place for leaders to put themselves because they have this person who is like are they broken or are they not broken i can use them for a couple of things but not all the things i don't think that's an area that we're really capitalizing on in the tactical space. Some are doing it well, to be fair, but I don't think at large we're doing a good job with that population. Yeah. Some of these, if you, if you get into the, like the recommended actions portion of the paper, you'll see some stuff that's like very relevant to tactical populations. Cause it talks a lot about the leader's role in recognizing some of these things. And some may be a little bit like counterintuitive or not necessarily counterintuitive, they're probably pretty intuitive, but counter to the way the culture is in a lot of tactical organizations. Things like it says coaches or leaders have a responsibility to monitor for external life stressors. And if they identify those things, there should be a corresponding reduction in the, the training or competition load for that particular individual. And I don't think that's something that our leaders are thinking about, right? I don't think our squad leaders saying like, man, Steve over there is pretty stressed out. He should take it easy during <laughs> PT. That's that's something that we probably do the opposite, right? Like going through some hard stuff, got to go extra hard here. You know, it's it's a challenge. Well, and I think the other piece to this too is they, you know, in, in kind of alluding to, and I'm, I'm talking about the consensus committee here and kind of alluding to 
this more contemporary idea of what injury is, the studies, they acknowledge that the studies <clears throat> that they looked at that, that used some of these methodologies, um, you know, combining mobile apps, pain, soreness, all this type of thing, the studies that use those tools showed that the prevalence of injuries related to overuse were as big of a problem, if not more of a problem, than acute injuries. And I think that's a really, really important point because what that elucidates is that if you put the time and effort towards acknowledging that injury is more than just, you know, point of contact, point of injury, there, there's things that can lead up to that, such as, you know, training, maladaptation to, to training, um, you know, overexposure to competition, which we'll get into, like, all of that can lead to what could be classified as injury if you are adjusting the way that you classify it from the beginning. So all that is to say that there is more to injury than just injury, which I realize probably doesn't make a ton of sense. And that's one of the reasons why we want to, I would say, dive into this a little bit because there's probably some really good pieces in this body research that we could tease out. So my question to you now is, have we sufficiently set the table? Yes, hopefully. To move into some of these conclusions here. Well, I mean, the other, you know, the next piece they go into is the study inclusion criteria, which we talked about a little bit um, in the intro. Um, I, I, this, to me, so reading research is kind of like people either love it or hate it. But I think, you know, if, if it is something that you're into or if you enjoy it and, you know, this statement, this injury statement being one of those. Sometimes looking at the inclusion criteria can be a great stepping off point for like bits and pieces that you find especially interesting. So that's not to give anybody like a synopsis on how to read research. I admittedly am not very good at it. But when you look at inclusion criteria, that can, if you look at it well, that can be a good way to decide if what the study is saying is worth it or not. And in this case, I think they do a really, really good job. They have a really robust inclusion criteria. And that makes sense because this is, I think we counted at the beginning, this is like 15 plus international experts that have pressed pause on their careers for three days to put together this consensus statement. So it makes sense that the inclusion criteria is robust. Yeah, let's move on to... Uh, the statements they make about rapid changes in load, if you'd like. Yeah, there are two there are two kind of key takeaways, I think, from this. And one is about rapid changes in load, and the other is about total load. And so since you're teed it up, we'll start with the rapid changes in load thing. And this is this kind of echoes stuff you've heard us say on the podcast before, but the and I'll see if I can get like the relevant quote to I've got pull right here. up to get it. But the the core thing is that and I've got some too, you might have the same one as I do, but like large week to week changes in load that includes rapid increases in intensity, duration, or frequency have been shown to place the athlete at a significantly increased risk of injury versus the other side of it. So athletes respond significantly better to relatively small increases and decreases rather than larger fluctuations in loading. There is evidence from some sports that if a load is applied in a moderate and progressive manner, and rapid increases in load relative to what the athlete is prepared for are avoided, high loads and physically hard training may actually offer a protective effect against injuries. And 
we'll we'll contrast this to trends that I at least have seen in the tactical environment, which is that rather than recognizing that periods with low training loads put you at a heightened risk of injury as you come back into training, we we actually end up overcompensating and say, oh, you guys haven't trained in a few weeks. We need to go extra hard to make up for all the training we've missed. And now you've set yourself up for the exact situation that the authors here identify as what puts athletes at the highest risk of injury. Again, that to me is one of those key points here because a lot of the studies that you see done in the sports performance space um, and, and specifically with strength and conditioning, like there's always discussion around volume and like, do we do a lot of volume? Do we do a little bit of volume? number of exposures, frequency, all that type of stuff. And and that's not to say that any of that is is wrong. And they make the case a couple of times throughout this that there's good research to back up high loading and high intensity and simulation of competition. There's good research there. There's also risk. You know, the risks there should be obvious. Like if you're training at a high intensity all the time, you know, there's you're likely to get injured. They also say that the other side of the equation is equally as dangerous. If you're training with low loads all the time, there's an increased risk of injury. So as I was reading through this the first time, you kind of read those two pieces and you're like, well, shit, what do we do? And and they do a good job, I think, in their next section of saying that it's, and again, I'll quote from them directly, while the studies on absolute load document a relationship between high and low loads and injuries, they fail to take into account the rate of load application. So this idea of the rate of load application as the key talking point, as opposed to just high load or low load is probably, well, not probably, it is incredibly valuable for coaches, for providers, for whoever is applying stress to an athlete. It's not that you need to just arbitrarily decide, is this going to be high stress or low stress? But more importantly, the level of stress that I start at how quickly I increase that is more likely to lead to injury risk versus just deciding one way or the other. Is this, you know, like I mentioned, high stress or low stress. So that to me was, I thought that was really well put. And they, again, that's one of those things that they talk about pretty frequently in here. Um, You know, they cage it with this acute chronic workload ratio, which I know a lot of folks, a lot of coaches are probably familiar with that. This idea of kind of, figuring out this this ratio of acute load and then chronic load over time and and what that number means they have an interesting graph where you know something around the 1.0 ratio is their quote unquote sweet spot i'll i'll do a little bit cuz i i end up quoting that graph all the time it. i don't want to steal your thunder cuz i'll i'll throw it back to you to talk about something we were talking about before you hit record cuz i think it's it's a good thing to hash out here but the, the takeaway from the graph they put in is that the the quote-unquote sweet spot for minimizing injury risk is to maintain a, a acute load. So like the, the load for the week you're in should be somewhere between 0.8 and 1.3 in terms of its ratio to the four-week rolling average of load. So if we like compare the week you're in to the previous month, essentially – it should be somewhere between 80% and 130% of the average week of that month. But that sets up 
a tough problem in terms of load monitoring because we, as we've discussed previously in this conversation, there is no single metric for load that's going to be able to account for all these things, especially when you're talking about combining the psychological load element, combining different types of training, whether it's endurance training that you can measure in distance or time versus resistance training that you're measuring in sets and reps. There's there's so many things that go into it. So you're kind of talking about 0.8 to 1.3 of like a mystery number that's kind of made up and we don't have a clear way to chart it on a graph. So that's the challenge is how does how does a coach or a leader effectively account for all the various things that we've just said contribute to load and then try and keep it moving in a consistent way rather than a spiky up and down way. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, I have not, I have not practically done a lot with acute chronic workload ratios. And I think a lot of that is because I think that there, there's a lot of limitations uh, that you mentioned, but I get why, I mean, the graph itself, if you look at the x-axis, acute chronic load ratio, and then the y-axis is injury likelihood as a percentage. So hypothetically, if I could somehow write my training to produce a chronic workload or an acute chronic workload ratio, I could plot that make-believe number on this graph and then turn around to a key leader or decision maker and say, because of the acute chronic workload ratio for athlete you know, X, they're 12% more likely to get injured. I mean, that's a really attractive model, but like you mentioned, it shouldn't be too difficult to see why that has limitations because yes, I can calculate, you know, total load for a session. I can do weights times reps times sets times time, you know, spent in the training facility and add RPE into the mix and then sprinkle on top some other physiological testing. But like, a lot of the stuff in the cognitive space or even the nutrition space is going to rely on self-reports from the athlete. And so how does that factor in and is it as accurate and does it feed into this number or doesn't it? I would argue that it should, but if it's based on self-report, then there's a lot of margin for error there. So again, like this to me was one of those segments of the consensus statement where like, I'm not going to say they're wrong because again, they're way more intelligent than I am, but as a as a like as a coach and practitioner, I don't necessarily find myself gravitating towards boxing everything up into a nice ratio because, like they said, and like you mentioned, there is no one singular way of doing that. So it's very attractive to work towards this sweet spot. Just understand that you're never really going to nail that because there's a lot that we don't know. If it hasn't become obvious already in the conversation, there there are plenty of times throughout the paper, and they don't shy away from it, where there's like contradictory evidence or contradictory ideas, and they they try very hard to boil these things down to super simple models that you can just like throw on a slide and call it good. But then in their discussion, they do a good job of talking about the limitations of those models. Um, I don't want to. I'm not sure we're quite ready to shift from talking about like acute chronic workload ratio stuff to talking about absolute load, but there's, there's a similar graph later in part two of the consensus statement. Like the paragraph immediately preceding the graph talks about the fact that there's evidence that like high absolute training loads are, 
are fine for elite athletes, but dangerous for recreational athletes. But then in like the very same segment, they talk about the fact that that's, that's not really the case. Like in some instances, high absolute load appeared to offer protection from injury for both elite and non-elite athletes. And so it kind of undermines the graph they have in there because it tries to make it look really simple with two curves, whatever. But I think it, it brings us back to the workload ratio thing. And that's, you heard the quote that Drew cited earlier, but their, their overall point is that if you rely too much on studies of absolute load, you're going to overlook the fact that most of those studies fail to account for how that load relates to the load those individuals were prepared to tolerate. And so you, you have to keep it all in mind at the same time. And I know that introduces some squishiness and some fuzziness, but don't, don't open up this consensus statement, look at the graphs and assume you figured out the whole thing because the graphs are like deliberate oversimplifications and it is important to understand the context. Exactly. And I, I, I'll, there's a couple things that come to mind. The first one, and again, this is just by definition of this being a consensus statement, and you'll see this with meta-analyses too, like they're not setting out to make any ground, you know, earth shattering claims. It's just a conversation around here's what the research says. And that's why there's so many references attached to this. Like, here's what the research says in favor of this approach, this approach, that approach. You know, there, there seems to be research that leads us to believe this. Um, and, and so, for example, and to kind of put a bow on this piece of it, their statement here is that the data suggests, and this is me quoting them again, that team sport athletes respond significantly better to relatively small increases and decreases rather than large fluctuations in loading. And as I read this, I was thinking back to the conversation that we had with Angus about, you know, people waiting, like, oh, is this evidence-based? Is this like, what does the evidence say? And then 20 years from now, the evidence comes out and it's like this stuff that we already kind of knew. I would, again, use this as an example of like, I think most, most coaches, most folks that work with athletes would understand that, yes, that consensus makes sense, that your best response is going to come from small increases or decreases in loading. You don't want to just take somebody from running four miles a week to 400 miles a week. And then like, Oh my God, why did they hurt their knee? It's like, well, that should be obvious. It's always nice to see that play out in the research and just sort of confirm what we know to be true. Um, and, and they, you know, they say that a couple of times in here, like for various things, it's like, we need to do we need to wait for some more robust research to come out, but we're comfortable enough with what we have now to say, you know, these various things. And in this case, I think they were spot on in saying that, again, it's not high load, low load, high intensity, low intensity. It's more about how quickly or slowly you are increasing or decreasing that over time. And I think this reminds me, this goes all the way back to the conversation we had with Brendan Hutman really early on in the podcast. But I think a mistake people make sometimes is to think that like all increases in load carry increased injury risk. So therefore we have to figure out the way to get like the most result out of the absolute lowest volume we can possibly do. Cause that's how you save people from injuries because volume is scary and dangerous. And I think you, if you read some of the stuff, you'll see that volume itself clearly is not the thing that's dangerous. It's volume that people are unprepared for. And 
something that like Brandon talked about and we've it's we it's been touched on in a few other conversations we've had since then over the last few months but it's really hard to predict what you're actually training a tactical professional for there's a tremendous amount of unknown but one thing that does seem to be consistent for a lot of tactical professionals not every single one but in a lot of the case that that theoretical situation that we want to make sure they're prepared for having them be highly tolerant to large volumes of work is generally a pretty consistently important element of that, right? And so we we need to prepare people for a decent amount of load. We can't send people into the unknown having trained them at super low volumes because we're afraid of volume and then send them on a mission or a deployment or whatever it is where they're going to have to do high workloads. And that even that even shows up with the athletes, right? Uh, quote from the paper, the studies associating low absolute loads with an increased risk of injury may imply inability to cope with impending higher loads. So if you know you are training professionals who might have to go out and carry load for a long time or do like repetitive physically demanding tasks, then you want to make sure that you have got them at least into the moderate, if not the high part of the absolute load curves on some of these graphs that they have shown up in here. You need to make sure they are volume tolerant. And the only way to do that responsibly is to do it gradually. I want to, you can pull me right back out of this if you want, but as you're talking, I'm diving into the weeds a little bit with this because we talked about this a little bit with Riley, this idea of, you know, do we change things every week or do we not? I think Angus mentioned it too. And even, well, most of our guests actually, we've, we've kind of teased this one out, this idea of like from a training standpoint, Especially with tactical athletes, because again, I would make the case that like any movement, maybe an asterisk there on any, but any movement is fair game in terms of what you can apply. Like there is no sport specificity ish. So when we, when I bring that back to this idea of load and the rate of load, you know, based on their definition, load is more than just reps, sets, frequency, volume, intensity. There is the psychological component. There's a lot that goes into this definition of load. And to me, novelty of the exposure would be included in that load. What I mean by that is if you introduce a brand new movement to an athlete, there is an increase, generally speaking, there is an increased perception of effort because it's a new movement. I think everybody can kind of agree with that. Like if if I were to tell you, well, we'll use you as an example. You've been working on your single leg uh, deadlift. Like for somebody that's done that for a long time, it's it's perceived as less difficult because they've been exposed to it. And so by definition of what we see here as, as load, the, the quote unquote load would, would be considered less. But if that's a brand new movement for somebody, that's a quote unquote higher load. And I say all that to kind of pull myself out of the weeds here because as we talk about the the rate of load application, to use their terms, if we include within that this idea of novelty to the exposure, what I'm trying to say is that you run the risk of injury if you take every single movement that the athlete's doing in week one and change it in week two and then change it again in week three. There are some camps that would say that that's a good thing. I would argue the opposite and say that change is good, but not whole scale change all the time because that is increasing load by their definition and an increased load without accounting for the rate of that application increases 
your chance of injury. So my, I guess my, my concluding thought there would be change the stimulus up. Yes. But keep some things consistent and think of it as almost cyclical in the sense that if I'm doing, you know, 10 movements, maybe I change two every week to introduce some novelty, but keep some things the same. So the overall load isn't as chaotic as it would be if I were to change all 10 of those things. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's that's where my head was at as I was kind of reading through this. It makes sense to me. I think part of it, really, what you're saying is just account for other factors that contribute to low. Like sets and reps itself is not necessarily the answer, as we've addressed a million times during this conversation. Novelty carries with it both perceived and frankly, I would add, especially since you talked about the single leg deadlift example, there is like real actual increase in like central nervous system like motor unit recruitment kind of load experienced kind of acutely for me personally. My first time doing like real heavy single leg deadlift was in my garage and I nearly passed out. <laughs> but like just a few weeks later of doing that semi-regularly, I'm doing like significantly heavier weight with no risk of that. And I think that was largely a central nervous system kind of thing of like, you're doing something that requires like large volumes of motor unit recruitment for both moving and stabilizing. And it's totally new there's there's some harder to quantify stressors involved in that. I was going to say, to to follow Alex's single leg deadlift journey, like, follow, subscribe to the Mops and Moe's Instagram because he's been posting it on his stories. It's really inspirational stuff. I, I post it occasionally. I can't post it too often because people will notice how much less weight it is than Alex. <laughs> All right. I think we touched... I want to, unless you've got anything else there, I'll move on to the competition calendar congestion because that was, I think, an interesting one. I think it's a good one. And I think when we, I'll set it up because I know you're going to, you're going to dive into this one, but parts of this are like learning to translate between athlete and tactical professional. And when I read like competition calendar congestion, I kind of switch gears to thinking of like non-physical training calendar congestion. So like all the, all the other things units are doing, it's like as op tempo picks up, it might get in the way of physical training. That doesn't mean that they're not under stress. They're just getting stressed through a different modality kind of, and it's, it's different for sport um, because like you have to be careful about assuming how much work people are, or are not doing when they go to the field. I know, I used to like suggest field PT to a lot of people because I was, I was a pogue. I was an analyst. Um, mostly when I went to the field, I sat in tents and looked at computers a lot. Um, so like field PT was a great thing to add for me and it made life way better in a lot of ways, but you're going to look like an ass. If you say that to guys who are on their feet all the time, when they're in the field doing really, really physical stuff and they probably need to stay away from that kind of thing. Cause it's going to, they should be focusing that energy on trying to get a few more calories or a little more sleep things like that. So there is a, there is a tough element as we dive into this section of it, of how do we make it relate to the realities of tactical? And all so there's two, I'll read it pretty directly from the paper for this piece of it, because again, like you mentioned, this is from a team sport perspective and we're translating it to a tactical environment. So I think it's good to, to use their words, the words that they intend to put across and, and they define calendar congestion as the accumulation of matches or events over a shorter period of time than usual. Um, so for example, it may represent an exacerbated rapid increase in the acute load imposed on the athlete. So for example, if your team plays, you know, one game a week 
calendar congestion to them would be a period of time where you play two games or three games just more than than usual. So uh, if you're reading directly from the paper, you'll see that they talk about a number of studies where they're getting really into the, like, you know, if they do less than two in this particular sport, injury happened this, you know, this much, or if they do more than five, whatever, like to me, the, the, the key piece is in their conclusion, which is that, and again, one of those things that seems pretty obvious a congested a congested competition calendar is associated with an increased risk of competition injury that makes sense if you're playing more games you're more likely to get hurt in a game surprise surprise but what was interesting to me is that training injuries seem uninfluenced or even reduced during periods of match congestion so keyword there they're talking about competition injuries versus versus training injuries so a training injury would be something that happens outside of the game it's po- and this is to use their words again. It is possible that this can be attributed to deliberate downregulation of the training load, as orienting the training towards recovery during periods of elite competition congestion is a customary practice in elite sport. I'm going to read that again. Orienting the training towards recovery during periods of competition congestion is a customary practice in elite sport. I would argue that in the tactical world, as the op tempo picks up. Leaders are more likely to push for higher intensity training under the assumption that because we have fewer training days, we need to hit it harder. The claim that they are making here, and it's not even a claim. I mean, it's supported by the research is that, and you see this all the time. I'll use rugby as an example. If you're playing multiple rugby matches in a week, the days where you're not playing are typically dedicated towards recovery. If you're playing in the NFL, same day, if, you know, if you've got a Thursday night game and then the next week is Sunday night, like if the calendar gets messed up, you're going to find places where you can inject training, but it's not going to look the same as what you're doing in the offseason or during a bye week because you have more time available to you. So the reason I wanted to hit this one specifically is because it seems like the most obvious statement of all time that training injuries would go down as competition goes up because training exposure goes down. I think the tactical world does this ass backwards in that as the op tempo picks up, and I've seen this happen, people will start to move away from recovery towards higher intensity training because they think they have to make up for the fact that they don't have as many training days, not taking into account that being in the field, doing the tactical stuff, doing your job counts as training. And if we do a good job of monitoring load, we can account for that in the overall picture of what it means to kind of deal with that. You know, we mentioned it chronic or acute workload ratio. This also gets back to some of our like standby favorites in terms of like measuring what you actually mean to measure and some good hearts wall kind of nonsense. Cause theoretically the, the stuff you are doing in the field is the stuff that you're doing the physical training to prepare for right in theory. And we can talk about how realistic or demanding various types of field training are. I got it. There's lots to discuss there. But if if you are saying that like going to the field is getting in the way of you doing physical training because you noticed you can't do as many push-ups when you come back from the field, we've we've put the cart before the horse a little bit, and now we're doing physical training just for the sake of performance on the PT test metrics rather than doing it for the sake of improving our performance of the actual mission. Cause like saying that, Oh, like saying that the mission is getting in the way of the physical training is 
kind of absurd on its face when you spend the time to think that you should be doing physical training that is tailored to the mission. I don't know where I was going with this one or how to wrap it up cleanly, but back to what Drew said in terms of there are other types of load other than just the physical training that you're measuring. And especially if you're in a coaching position where you don't necessarily see them while they do all the training they're doing out in the field, or if it's a deployment or a big exercise or whatever it is, it's easy to assume that that's just lost time. And when they come back to you, you're getting back at it. You need to factor in the load they were accumulating during that time. And I would even go so far as to say that like, you know, if, if we are okay with the fact that during periods of high operational tempo training should focus on recovery, if we're okay with that statement, what I would then say is if over time you find that your fitness metrics are going down, it's not that you need to look at the fact that you're not training hard during training. It's that you should probably look at the ops tempo itself because in the tactical, I mean, they use the word competition calendar and competition injury. You can easily translate that to like tactical calendar or tactical injury. If you want to call it that, if, if that type of work is congesting the calendar again, to use their terminology, it's probably worth having a discussion around, Hey, maybe we should dial back the days we spend in the field because it's starting to, we're starting to suffer from like a, a total athlete perspective. I realize that's kind of a bold claim to make, but that's what you'd see. And that's what they claim in their consensus statement when they they challenge some of these international sporting bodies to look at the congested calendar and maybe we don't play as many games, you know, for whatever sport you're looking at. That would translate to a tactical environment as to say, you know, is the time spent in the field, the things that we're doing, is it is it worth, is the juice worth the squeeze or is there a way to manage that so that we can allow for optimal training on both ends of the spectrum, competition and training. So I think we can put a bow on that unless you've got anything else and move on to the psychological piece before going to the, the kind of considerations and areas for future research. I'll add a super brief one. And this is purely from prior experience being the tactical professional in the unit. But I think there is a really great point in, in what you just said about like is increasing the quote unquote competition calendar congestion, in this case, the amount of field training actually getting you better at the thing. Cause I remember so many collective training exercises where, and I'm, I'm particularly thinking back to when I was Lieutenant at this point, we had kind of a, a particularly fast train up and then like reset and then like train up again for a slightly different mission kind of thing going on. And you would finish the like main event of the training exercise. And you do this AAR where you talked about all the things you needed to work on for the next training exercise. But because the next training exercise was coming so soon and you only had time to like get back and get your vehicles ready again and reset briefly because you had to immediately get spinning up again, prepping to go to the field, you you never got to implement any of the things you identified that you needed to fill your gaps on or like retrain a couple of things that you noticed you were weak on. You never got to address any of those because you were just trying to keep up with the tempo of the training you had to do to check the blocks on the training calendar. I know this is getting outside the scope of a, a human performance focused podcast here, but I do think there is an opportunity there for some leader reflection on at a certain point, if you filled up all the white space with collective training and you're telling junior leaders that they have to train on some of these individual crew squad, small unit type of tasks, 
but you're keeping them so busy with collective training that they don't have the opportunity to do it, there might be some self-defeating stuff going on in the way you're approaching scheduling your training calendar. I'll jump ahead only to then come back because in, in one of their later sections, their practical guidelines for load management, there's two pieces that they they talk about specifically. And again, I'll use their words and bear in mind, they're talking about international sport. So number one, as it pertains to what we're talking about here, which is ops tempo, number one, coaches and support staff must schedule adequate recovery, particularly after intensive training periods, competitions, and travel, including nutrition and hydration, sleep and rest, active rest, relaxation strategies, and emotional support. Again, one of those things that seems obvious doesn't necessarily happen in the real world. Point number two Sports governing bodies must consider the health of the athletes and hence the competition load when planning their event calendars. This requires increased coordination between single sport and multi-sport event organizers and the development of a comprehensive calendar of all international sports events. The way I would translate that to the tactical space is to say that leaders at all different echelons should probably be a little bit more, should probably be coordinating a little bit better to account for the point that they make in that first bullet I read out adequate recovery, especially after intensive training periods that allows for proper nutrition, hydration, sleep, rest, etc. Again, and I just, I realize I just said this, it seems super obvious, but I think when stuff gets really busy, that's the type of thing that gets left out of the conversation. So that's me jumping ahead. I will now jump back to the psychological load piece if you're ready for it. Go for it. Cool. So this this is just a quick little, it's a small section within the larger subsection of load and risk injury in athletes. But we talked about how, how it was interesting that they included a lot of the psychological load stuff. I think this is especially interesting because for Alex and I, at least, we just talked to Mike about the cognitive stuff. So the episodes will come out at different times. But with that fresh on my mind, it was really nice to see this or, or these discussion points and they say here that the proposed mechanism by which psychological stress responses increase injury risk is through attentional and somatic changes such as increased distractibility, peripheral narrowing, muscle tension, fatigue, reduced timing, coordination. So there's a lot of talk in these emerging human performance realms with conventional forces and otherwise around how do we account for psychological load. And we can see from the research that increased psychological load increases risk of injury. But what does that really mean from a human being standpoint and how can we capture it? And Mike talks about this in the conversations we had with him. It was nice to see that that lines up with what these guys are talking about here. Things like distractibility, peripheral narrowing, like this is all stuff that we can measure and train. And so it allows for some really nice practical nuggets for the folks involved in the psychological realm to apply to some of this load management. So it's not just strength coaches. It's not just injury prevention specialists. It's not just dietitians. I need to, uh, I need to train it a little bit myself. I had to, I took a psychomotor vigilance test today at work and I didn't realize the test was going to be like five straight minutes of uninterrupted psychomotor vigilance. And I ended up like backing out of the assessment because I was just getting like annoyed and bored. And maybe that's a lack of focus and a high level of distractibility. So, well, and I thought the other thing that they mentioned here too is, is like the, so we, we talked about, you know, a little while ago load. And if you increase or decrease load too quickly, you increase the susceptibility of injury. 
And they make the statement that if you increase or decrease psychological load too quickly, same thing applies. So like they use, I love that they described it as daily hassles, uh, but the evidence for the potential of daily hassles to predict injuries may be particularly important as it suggests a potential rapid change to the injury risk to which an athlete is exposed. So if there are massive fluctuations in psychosocial state, that is, you know, equally, if not more so applicable to this idea of increased injury risk. So what athletes are going through, what they're experiencing, whether it's major life events, um, daily hassles, like they mentioned, it's just a conversation around how that makes them more vulnerable to injury. And I would argue that it's important not to gloss over that. Um, And I I won't spend a ton of time on it because I know we had an entire episode with Mike that kind of gets into the weeds with some of it. I think this stuff gets squishy and hard and a lot of it belongs to leaders being able to communicate with and care about subordinates in a, in a constructive real way. And it's really hard to give super conclusive guidelines on how to do this better. But what, what I can say is something that has come out in countless conversations we have had on the podcast and more and more of the emerging research in the space is that whether, whether the people participating in the training think the training is going to work, whether they believe in it, whether they care about it, all of that likely matters more than the X's and O's of it. And I think that is intertwined very directly with this like psychological components of training and psychological components of stress stuff. That's one of the many reasons that establishing those relationships is so crucial. Do you want to move to the practical guidelines? I think so. I think we've touched on some of the practical guidelines already. So we may end up skimming through some of it, but yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, so I, you know, definitely skimming because again, a lot of this pertains specifically to sport. And an example of that, you know, here was like in football and by football, they mean soccer, you know, playing two matches compared to one match per week increases. Like it's interesting if you're into that kind of thing, but it's not necessarily the most relevant to, to our population. And so some of the ones that I highlighted in terms of practical guidelines for prescribing training and competition load are, and again, these will seem obvious, high loads can have either positive or negative influences on injury risk in athletes, which we talked about. It's that the rate of load application and intrinsic risk factor profile are the critical factors. So again, I don't think we can say that enough. High loads, low loads, they can have positive or negative influences. It's the rate of application that makes the bigger difference in terms of being the injury predictor, or not the injury predictor, but increasing the risk of injury. Um, another one that I looked at was that load should always be prescribed on an individual and flexible basis. Um, and, and they talk about this a lot more than than we did because I think we've talked about it a lot in a number of episodes that we've done. Just this idea that there are large inter and intra individual differences in the response and adaptation to training. And then the other one that I looked at was that the variation in an athlete's psychological stress and in an athlete's psychological stressors should also guide the prescription of training and or competition loads. And so again, that's one of those things that we've talked about a lot, but we'll say it again and we'll probably say it a lot in the future because it's important. If you are only accounting for external load factors and not taking into account and not building into your programming mechanisms that can account for the psychosocial state of the athlete, you are missing a massive chunk of the overall influence towards adaptation. The other two pieces of this section are the ones that we talked about already in terms of dealing with scheduling conflicts and decongesting the calendar and all that kind of stuff. So I'll I'll turn it over to you if you've got anything else on that one. 
No, I think the the big one here is going to be a lot of these practical guidelines. We're constantly on this podcast balancing kind of two audiences, right? Like the audience of coaches and human performance professionals and the audience of tactical professionals who in many cases don't even have access to any of those human performance professionals. And whether you're in an organization that does have dedicated human performance staff or not, a lot of the practical guidelines discussed here are not actually going to be in the hands of a human performance professional to make decisions on and implement. Some of them will, but a lot of these come down to like those human performance professionals just have to be the ones who share the knowledge and make sure people are talking about these things because the actual measures that are taken that will make a difference are going to be in the hands of the leaders in uniform in these organizations. That was one of the ones that stood out to me is that many of these are not things that you do in the gym necessarily. They're, they're ways you balance competing demands and develop your schedules and just lead your people. Agreed. And so I, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but the, the practical guidelines section of this consensus statement breaks down into three pieces, which is the prescribing training and competition load we talked about, the monitoring load, which I'll get into here in a second, psychological load management and the monitoring of injury. So the prescribing training, again, we discussed the monitoring load piece. Some of the ones that I teased out from there in terms of practical guidelines is that load should always be monitored individually. I think that's fair to say, um, you know, that's not to say that there's not room for, you know, kind of monitoring the, the group at large, but you should be accounting for the individual. Subjective load measures are particularly useful and coaches and support staff may employ them with confidence. I know we mentioned that already, uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll rehash it. So subscales that evaluate non-sports stress, fatigue, physical recovery, general health slash well-being and being in shape are responsive to acute and chronic training. And that's essentially them just kind of double tapping that idea that it's okay to include subjective metrics in your analysis of load monitoring. Monitoring should be performed frequently. I think that's another one that's important. And I'll go all the way back to one of the earlier episodes we had. I don't remember who it was with or what we were talking about necessarily, but this idea of assessments versus training and how frequently you should assess. My perspective on this has always been that assessments should be built in to the training and, and you can do it to the level of like the athlete doesn't even necessarily recognize that they're being assessed. That's not to say that it's as black and white as like, hey, we're going to do a one rep max today. But like if you're using rate of perceived exertion, for example, that is a, that's an assessment metric that you can use. That's a way to monitor load. And you can do that every single day. If, if an athlete is reporting, you know, we'll use a back squat. If they're back squatting 300 pounds and that's an RPE of eight, and then the next week they do a back squat of 300 pounds and it's an RPE of 10. That is a practical way of monitoring load and athlete response. And if you recognize that that is a signal and that's an assessment, you can then act on it. So again, probably the type of thing that's worth its own episode or its own longer conversation, but this idea that you should be performing frequent monitoring of load and not just checking in every 10 weeks or 12 weeks because it's time to do you know a test or whatever. I think that, that also brings up an opportunity for like to talk about the ways human performance professionals can advocate for just like generally taking care of people, even when it's beyond some of the classics here, you, you talked about like 
finding ways to build assessments into the things you're already doing. One of the one of the ones that came to mind here. This is somewhat like picking at a wound that has mostly healed just to open it up again for funsies. Um, Why not? Uh, a debate I got in a while back that that led to a particular human performance organization not liking me a whole lot was about uh, this particular organization had a really going back to like competition congestion. They had a really busy op tempo uh, coming back from deployment, jumping into a training cycle, lots of competing things going on. And they ended up having to pack in a whole bunch of requirements into the same week. So they ended up with like two airborne operations, a five mile run, a 12 mile ruck and an ACFT all occurring in the same week. And I think that's a, that's a classic example of like, first off you're, if you just look at it as like raw volume of stuff you're doing, it might not seem that bad. Like the, the total mileage of running, the total mileage of rucking, the total reps and sets of various things you're doing might not be horrible, right? But there is a psychological load associated with the fact that all of those things are assessments and there are consequences to failing them and they're being explicitly told they are assessments and you're going to do one or possibly more than one every day for an entire week. There's a ton of stress involved in that. Um, some of those events, depending on who you are, may be uniquely stressful on their own or like fear inducing or whatever it is. And finding strategies to address the human consequences of setting up, whether it's physical training, tactical training, competition, whatever it is, to avoid setting up scenarios where you're putting people through things like that, that could have otherwise been avoided. I think that's a beautiful segue to their next subsection, which is the psychological load management. They have four points here, and I'm going to read all of them because I think we have heard it enough from from people in this space. Like the psychological component of training is the one that people have the least amount of understanding on. Uh, so again, this is their psychological load management, their practical guidelines for psychological load management. Some of the stuff we've already talked about, and you know, feel free to jump in whenever you want. So their first one is that developing resilient strategies to help athletes understand the relationship between personal traits negative life events, thoughts, emotions, and physiological states, which in turn may help them minimize the impact of negative life events and the subsequent risk of injury. So key takeaway there is just develop strategies, have conversations with your athletes so that they understand the relationship between the psychological aspect of training and the risk of injury, you know, good, bad, or otherwise. The second point they make, educating athletes in stress management techniques, confidence building, and goal setting optimally under supervision of a sports psychologist to help minimize the effects of stress and reduce the likelihood of injury. I don't think there's much more to elaborate on there. I would refer to Mike's episode because we literally talked about that exact thing. The third point they make, reducing training and or competition load and intensity to mitigate injury risk for athletes who appear unfocused as a consequence of negative life events or ongoing daily hassles. I'm going to read part of that again because I think it's important. Mitigate injury risk for athletes who appear unfocused as a consequence of negative life events. To me, that is critical because a lot of times if we can't measure it, we assume that it's not happening. And what they're saying here is that if somebody that you're working with appears unfocused, it is okay and is actually encouraged that you reduce training and or competition load and intensity to mitigate injury risk. 
So again, one of those things that does not seem like a massive point, but what it is opening up the conversation for is this idea that it's okay to check in on somebody. It's okay to account for the fact that you may not be able to measure their quote unquote unfocusedness, if that's a word. But if they appear that way, it's probably worth reducing training. And you can do that with some of the strategies we talked about, utilizing auto-regulation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is another example of a good lesson for like leaders in general, whether you're a human performance professional or not. Um, I was definitely guilty of screwing this one up as a platoon leader in one of my more vividly memorable uh, lieutenant screw-ups. I don't generally think of myself as like an overbearing, super intense leader. I'm usually like the more laid back type. Um, but in this particular situation, I had a soldier who was was struggling with a couple things. And I thought that the right answer was to just push them really hard on those things until we got them on the right track. Right. So I was constantly checking in, adding stuff that they needed to do to work on it, whatever it was. Um, in this case, it was like fitness related stuff. And I thought I was helping by just like piling on and adding stress and the way I found out I was not helping is when the soldier ended up going to the commander because they had like nearly decided to go AWOL because of the amount of stress largely due to like my counterproductive trying to help, but actually making things a lot harder. Uh, I think this is one that like, that was probably an example of me doing the like old school army approach to like, oh, they're struggling with the thing. So they need more of the thing. And I probably could have learned a lesson there in terms of, of psychological load management. If you had read this paper, you would have known that. So I'll, I'll hit on the, the fourth point they make. This is the last one under the psychological load management piece, but implementing peri periodical stress assessments, um, and they, they talk about a couple, to inform adjustment of athletes' training and or competition loads. Uh, and then to rehash the point that they made in the previous one, an athlete who reports high levels of daily hassle or stress could likely benefit from reducing the training load during a specified time period to prevent potential fatigue, injuries, or burnout. Um, so again, I don't think that there's anything, you know, earth shattering in that statement, but it's, it's one of those things that's nice to hear this idea of like account for the stuff that you can measure, but also account for the things that you can't. And unless you got anything else to add on the psychological one, we'll do the injury one. I, I don't, I just want to make sure, cause I know you're summarizing a lot of good bullet points here. We're not going to summarize the research directions segment, are we? Cause there's no. too many bullet points. Okay. No. Good. No. <laughs> No, like I said, we'll 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 point you guys in the direction of where to find this consensus statement because it should go without saying that it is much more uh, in depth than what we are giving it credit. We don't want this to be a six-hour podcast. Yeah, we're in the conclusion section here, guys. Bear with us. So the monitoring of injury one again. I won't read this bullet by bullet, but they're basically saying that catching things early in terms of symptoms and signs of injury can help mitigate actual injury down the road. Uh, and, and one thing that they touch on, and I think everybody in the tactical space can, can like empathize with this athletes in a tendency to continue to train and compete despite the existence of symptoms or limitations, especially at the elite level, shout out special operations guys highlights the need for using appropriate injury monitoring tools. So they don't, they don't necessarily. And again, it is a consistent, a consensus statement. So they're not necessarily intending to do this. They don't give, any specific screeners or tools or things like that. They're just saying that, you know, injury monitoring should be ongoing, uh, but you should probably have a, a minimal period of time of at least four weeks before rapidly increasing load. The tools that you use should be sensitive to acute and overuse injuries, but also early symptoms um, such as pain or functional limitations. 
and then ongoing scientific surveillance systems, basically injury monitoring should be established in all sports and, and really in all environments. That's, again, the four pieces in terms of the practical guidelines. We talked about the training and competition load, how to monitor load, the psychological load, and then the monitoring of injury. Like you mentioned, we won't do the research directions because there's a lot of them and it's not necessarily something that everyone will be interested in. You know, they do call for more studies, obviously bigger studies. Cool. But in terms of a summary, the the piece that I highlighted, and I think the piece that really goes without saying is that the rate of load application in combination with the athlete's internal risk factor profile are likely critical factors when it comes to risk of injury. Awesome. Yeah. If, if you made it this far, you've, you've heard us summarize a lot of complicated things and various takeaways and conflicting things. But if there is, there's one message you take away from this whole podcast, it is not that volume itself is what predicts injury risk or leads to injuries. In fact, some of the data suggests that athletes who are training at the highest total volumes are the least injured and the most protected from injury. It is rather that sharp spikes upwards and downwards where you're doing like a hero workout one day and then missing training for three weeks and then going after something crazy when you come back to make up for that lost time. That's where the real risk comes from. And it, it all comes back to a term you constantly hear us saying and coaches all agree that it's the thing to focus on, but it's the hardest thing to really develop, which is consistency. Um, and that, that is all about the culture you set in the organization. So again, that is the consensus statement from the international Olympic committee on load and sport and risk of injury. How much is too much? It was in the British journal of sports medicine in 2016. It is, it's, it's free and open, right? You, you didn't have to do any paywalls. They pulled a classic strength coach on this one. They, they put a bunch of resources in, got a whole bunch of people together to ask a really specific question. And the question was how much is too much? And their answer was, it depends. It depends. So again, let us know if this is the type of thing that you enjoy. We'd like to do a better job bridging the gap between the research world and the, the practitioner world. And I think discussions like this are one of the ways to do that. So thank you for making it this far. Hopefully you learned something today. Hey guys, Drew here. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you found it useful or enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you giving us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can also give us a follow on the Mops and Mo's Instagram. And if you'd like to reach out, send us a message on Instagram or shoot us an email at mopsinmos at gmail.com. Thanks.